Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. And how are you? How are you doing out there in podcast land? Podcast land? In the shift land? Regular life? In your car, maybe? Not sure where you are, what you're doing, but wherever you are, welcome. And uh, if you've been listening along to previous episodes of In the Shift, then you'll know that we've been talking for quite a while now about the way we see God. And in order to do that, we've talked about the language we use for God, the way we, con- we conceive of what we even name when we're naming the divine. And then we've also looked at violence in the Bible and ideas of hell. These two ideas probably that go together, which is what kind of God are we dealing with here? Is it a God who we can trust? Is it a God who ultimately resorts to violence just like we do? And my suggestion has been no. Uh, no to the violence and yes to the trust. And then most recently, we've been discussing the meaning of Jesus' death. And so we've come to the last in this quite long series of episodes exploring our ideas about God, which is not to say that I won't be talking about God again on this podcast. I think you'll probably find that I do that relatively frequently. But it's just that what I've wanted to do in these particular episodes is in some way try to unpack some common ways of seeing God. And in particular, maybe some of those ways that can be a bit unhealthy, maybe kind of problematic and offer what I think is an invitation to think about God differently. And what I hope comes out of that then is an invitation to think about our spirituality and in fact our lives differently, to see how spirituality and faith can in fact be a profound resource for life in the 21st century. Uh, And it can do so without becoming just another thing that fosters the kind of tribalism and division and competition that we see in the world at the moment. So my hope is that even if you're someone who's maybe been asking some questions of your faith or someone who's stayed well clear of this kind of conversation in the past for some of these problematic reasons, uh, that wherever you're at on that kind of spectrum, you're finding something meaningful and useful in the conversation. So in particular, the last couple of episodes, I've been exploring the meaning of the death of Jesus, this icon of the cross that sits at the very heart of the Christian tradition. And I guess you could say, although there's 2,000 years of conversations about this, 2,000 years of theology and thinking and perspectives, which means we could discuss it for years, I suppose. You know, looking at all the different perspectives and beliefs. What I've been really trying to do here is a couple of things. Firstly, I think to acknowledge that the Christian tradition itself does have diversity within it. So some of the things we assume are the ways people have always seen things, you know, are not actually the ways people have necessarily always seen things and certainly not the ways that everybody has seen things. So one example we've looked at along the way is this assumption, I think, in contemporary evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic kind of faith, you know, that everyone has always understood the death of Jesus to be about satisfying God's demand for justice and that Jesus' death then is the sacrifice that pays this penalty to God that was required from us. But what we've talked about here in this podcast is that it's really only from the 16th century onwards that this becomes the predominant view within certain streams of the Christian church. And What this realisation does for us, I hope, is to allow us to open ourselves up a little bit and to realise that to ask questions of things that we believe is not diverging from the one true path, but is in fact participating in an ongoing tradition that has always been offering different perspectives and points of view. Now, for some of you, if you've not been immersed within a particularly conservative kind of framework, that's not going to be a big deal at all. That's not going to be a big question that you're wrestling with. Am I allowed to think about a divergent point of view? But for some of you who have been entrenched within particular uh, quite narrow streams of Christian tradition, it might feel a bit scary at times to think about things differently because you feel like, doesn't hasn't everybody always said this one thing? 
And so I find it kind of liberating to recognize that uh, Christians, people within my tradition have always been asking questions and offering different perspectives about some of these things. And so to do so myself is in fact to participate in that tradition and that's okay and doesn't mean you're spiraling out of control into some kind of remote uh, non-Christian world, whatever that might mean. Uh, The second thing then I've wanted to offer here in this little series around the meaning of Jesus' death are some ways of thinking about it that aren't shaped by this view of God that is angry and demanding blood because I see a lot of problems with that kind of theology. And in fact, what I'm suggesting is that the whole Jesus story is supposed to reject that view of God, that the death of Jesus is not an endorsement of the angry, bloodthirsty God, but in fact the very opposite. So in this episode, I want to continue or kind of complete this conversation and push a little more into this idea that the death of Jesus is in fact the ultimate expression of nonviolence, a rejection of the taking up of power over others, and therefore the invitation is to us to, to follow, to live differently in the world. So this is episode 16 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So episode 16 of In the Shift, this episode is called The Death of Jesus and the Subversion of Power. Uh, And I want to start with this idea that the story of Jesus doesn't enter into a vacuum. The story takes place in space and time and in the midst of human history. Probably not a big shocker to you, but it's helpful sometimes to remember what is the context into which this story emerges. And what we find is that, you know, if we if we look back through human history, there's always been this tendency, and we've discussed this a little bit already, this tendency in the human condition towards violence and toward the way we use power over others to get our own way. And perhaps evolutionarily, we could look at that in the terms of survival instinct and the way in which competition has kind of functioned, competition and belonging have both have functioned to ensure our own survival as a, as a group, as a tribe, as a species. Uh, and yet, the problem that emerges over time as human communities develop is that that violence uh, spirals out of control and becomes uh, part of the fundamental problem of the human condition. Uh, and it's connected not just to the externalization of physical violence against people, but against our desire uh, to use the power that we have over others who might get in our way or to get our own way in some sense. And so history is filled with accounts of who's fighting who, of nation versus nation, or of group versus group, or tribe versus tribe, of people versus people, of empires rising and empires falling, of tyrants taking power, of tyrants being overthrown by more powerful tyrants, or by people who started off with great um, integrity and turned into powerful tyrants over time. And so human history is this long-running violent jostling for position and power. You know, and that happens at a really large level in terms of nation versus nation. But it also happens in really subtle ways all the time in personal experience as well. And so we've got this ongoing human experience of the taking of power and the losing of power and the taking of power and the losing of power. And in the first century Palestine, which is the time when Jesus is born, it's the Roman Empire in this particular part of the world who are the current rulers and they are the ones who have the power. They are the ones with the military might. They have the control. And... The Jewish people living in Palestine at this time are the ones who are oppressed and they are brutalized by this regime, along with other people uh, throughout the Roman Empire who have been overrun by this very powerful entity. 
Now, for many of the Jewish people in the first century, the, their answer to this experience of oppression is to hope that a Messiah, which literally means an anointed one, and, and they use this to think about some kind of deliverer king, is going to come, is going to lead them in a revolution of some kind, and that, that revolution will overthrow this evil Roman regime and will give the power and control back to the nation and the people of Israel. And, of course, the implication is here is that the nation and the people of Israel will, have, of course, be a much better empire than the Roman one. And so we have this violent Roman Empire who, you know, who crushed their enemies and who, um, who achieved peace through victory and peace through conquest. And then we have an oppressed people here in the story, uh, some of whom, not all, but some of whom are wanting a violent revolution themselves to overthrow the violent empire that they are suffering under the weight of. And this is the world into which the story of Jesus enters. And he enters into this story uh, and speaks of a different way of being entirely, speaks of a different message. And so he begins his message uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. The way that that tells the story is that his first kind of big talk, what's sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, begins with these Beatitudes, uh, which claim that blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for things to be put right. It's a very countercultural way of seeing reality. And these Beatitudes, as they're often called, are not conditions of blessing, you know. And sometimes that's the way they're talked about within the Christian faith. Oh, if, if the poor in spirit are blessed, then I need to figure out how to become poor in spirit so that I too can be blessed. These are not keys to blessing. These are proclamations of an upside-down reality. Uh, and so what Jesus begins his his ministry, if, you, if we call it that, uh, with is this proclamation that the people on the underside are the one whom God is on your side. God is with you. The people who are poor, poor in spirit, poor in money, uh, those who are meek, those who are peacemakers, those who are hungry and thirsty, uh, those who are persecuted and oppressed and run over. These are the ones uh, for whom God's heart is towards. That, that seems to be the kind of thing that Jesus begins his ministry by saying. And in this very famous uh, series of uh, conversations that take place that we, that we call this collection of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he also makes this claim that we are to love our enemies and it seems that Jesus is probably the first figure that we know of in ancient history who advocates for loving your enemies as central to an ethical framework or an ethical paradigm for life. And we might be used to hearing that by now, uh, 2,000 years later. Um, but at the time, it's deeply countercultural. In fact, I think it's still deeply countercultural, and I think it's one of the things that most people don't really grasp about the Jesus story at all. In this Sermon on the Mount, uh, there's only one... There's only a couple of occasions where Jesus talks about being perfect, and this is one of them. And it's be perfect just as God is perfect. This is the this is the claim of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's right in the middle of the context of loving your enemies because that's what God does. And so uh, this is this provocative countercultural idea that instead of pursuing the kind of violent uprising that we might be tempted to pursue, to shake off the shackles of oppression, uh, Jesus suggests that, in fact, the true path to transfiguration is through love of even our enemies. Now, this kind of attitude shapes Jesus' whole way of being, and the Romans didn't quite know what to make of this, really, because <laughs> Jesus seems like a revolutionary, which is a bit of a problem if you're trying to control the empire. He's gathering lots of followers, 
Uh, he's stirring up quite a scene, but at the same time, he doesn't seem to carry a sword. He doesn't seem to be gathering an army. And then many of the Jewish people, especially the religious political leaders, didn't really know what to make of him either. He was healing and liberating and inspiring their people. But he didn't seem to want their revolution, you know, and and this is what they were anticipating a, a couple of hundred years earlier uh, for the nation of Israel who were under a different kind of oppression at that time under the um, the Greek uh, ruler Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Uh, they were under severe persecution and a figure rose up at that time called Judas Maccabeus who led a, a Maccabean, the Maccabean revolution against Antiochus Epiphanes and his forces uh, and liberated the people, for a time at least. And there was this hope that maybe Judas Maccabeus was, in fact, the Messiah that they had been waiting for, the deliverer that they would that they were hoping for. Now, in the end, uh, Judas Maccabeus is killed, and uh, and that's usually that's usually the end of of claims to messiahship, I guess. Um, but this kind of figure sticks in the imagination, you know, one like their ancient archetypal hero in the Old Testament, which is King David, who is this powerful military kind of figure. And so this is the kind of leader they're looking for. This is the kind of Messiah they're hoping for. And this Jesus person who seems to be acting a bit like you might want a Messiah to act at the same time is saying and doing things that seem a little bit backwards, but upside down, but back to front. In fact, John the Baptist, who's the cousin of Jesus of Nazareth, and is the first one to, he, he baptizes Jesus and he has this kind of moment, this kind of mystical encounter in which he claims to, in some way, see this divine endorsement of the person of Jesus and his ministry. And yet John the Baptist later on finds himself in prison and he sends his followers to Jesus to say, are you the, are you the one we were waiting for? Because this doesn't seem to be going the way I anticipated. Uh, here I am in prison. This is essentially the, the, ten, the tone of, of what John the Baptist is asking. And Jesus sends these these people back to John to tell him, you know, well, the people are being liberated. But it, the kind of liberation that Jesus is talking about is very profoundly different to the kind of liberation perhaps even John himself was anticipating. And so what we find is that this Jesus is confronting or challenging or upending ideas of redemptive violence. And when I talk about redemptive violence, I'm really talking about this idea that violence can ultimately be the path to peace. Um Redemptive violence is very, very strong in our psyche. It's very hard to get outside of the idea of redemptive violence. So many, um, so much of pop culture is built on the symbol of redemptive violence that the figure who we're kind of rooting for, who is going to use violence to defeat the bad guys and to support the good guys. And what we tend to see here, or what we definitely see here in the story of Jesus, is a rejection of this idea of redemptive violence as some kind of path to peace. Uh, instead, what we see is the confrontation and even the rejection of the idea of a God who endorses violence and the power of the empire. Um, now, Jesus lives in a world in which power and violence are often attached to uh, various versions of divinity. You know, So for the Romans and the Roman Empire, the peace of Rome, as I mentioned before, came through violent conquest. And the emperor was to have your allegiance and even your worship. And so the Caesar was given this semi-divine kind of status. And the phrase, the title for Caesar in the first century is Lord and Saviour. Another title for the Caesar is the Son of God. Uh, now, these are titles you will come 
to see are used of Jesus in the first century. And in this sense, they aren't, um, even the claim of Jesus as the Son of God is not necessarily some mystical claim about divine identity, as much as it is a direct contrast to the Caesar, to the Emperor, who is the Lord and Saviour and the Son of God, according to Rome. And so you've got uh, the Roman Emperor, the Caesar, who's Lord and Saviour and the Son of God, but whose victory and peace comes through violence. And then for the Jewish people, well, you have God on their side, don't you? You have God on the side of Jewish religious power and, and their hope that God would send them a Messiah who would raise up a liberating army to overpower the Romans and put Israel back at the top of the world. Uh, and, you know, the, you, had, you had Jewish people who were, who were training in the Torah, the Jewish law, and also training in weaponry and how to fight because they were anticipating a revolution. At one, one point in time, they tried to forcibly make Jesus the leader of their revolution. And Jesus uh, slips through the crowd and away because this is not the way in which he wants to fulfill the kind of uh, mission that he feels, the kind of vocation that he feels called to. And so Jesus doesn't actually bend to either of these visions. He doesn't bend to the Roman vision, uh, the vision of power through conquest, and he doesn't endorse um, the potential violent revolution that some Jewish religious powers were hoping for either. He doesn't bend to either of those visions. And I think what happens in the Jesus story is that he really exposes both versions as ultimately problematic, you know. The, kind, the binary or the dualistic us versus them vision is exposed as really being the same story. And I know that in the first century, the Jewish people are under the oppression of the Roman Empire and, and the life and message and ministry of Jesus confronts and challenges the power of that empire. And so I don't want to say that uh, Jesus just wants to let things go as they are, status quo, whatever happens, happens, just let the powerful rule over. That's, that's not what I think is going on here. But I do think the critique... Is that what you is that Jesus offers? Is that the way you ultimately overcome something like the power of the empire is not by seeking to become powerful like the empire or more powerful than it, so you can overthrow it? Ultimately, that's just um, that's just saying no. God's not on your side. God's on our side, and we're going to defeat you instead of you defeating us. And and I think there's something going on in the Jesus story that says. Let's offer a revolution, but it's a different kind of revolution. And so, as we've already mentioned, for, for Jesus, this kind of revolution is grounded in the notion of loving your enemies, for example, or turning the other cheek. Uh, at one point, you know, when Jesus is getting arrested, Peter, who's one of his disciples, pulls a sword out and, and, and goes in swinging, chops the ear off of somebody. And Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword and makes this claim, those who live by the sword die by the sword. And here you can see Jesus recognizing and acknowledging and pointing out that this spiral of violence is unending. And if we use violence to try and confront violence, then ultimately we are left with violence. Now, just because Jesus advocates for peace, as I said before, it doesn't mean that he's not disruptive. Jesus is disruptive in all sorts of interesting ways. And forgiveness is offered to people outside of the boundaries of religious control. Uh, access to the divine in some kind of way takes place beyond the gatekeepers. 
he disrupts these religious systems that, that are supposed to kind of hold things in place, you know, and keep the order. Uh, and also a different kind of kingdom unfolds for Jesus because he has this language of the kingdom of God. Um, but the kind of kingdom that unfolds here is one that dismantles and really undermines all of the Roman systems of status and control. The Roman Empire, uh, Greco-Roman Empire, shaped a lot by Greek philosophy as well by, as well as Roman thinking, is is profoundly status-oriented. And you, um, depending on where you were at within that hierarchy, you were stuck there and you had to be subservient to those who were above you in that status. And so much of what happens in the Jesus story uh, pulls in those people who are on the margins and those who are of much lesser status and treats them as equals. And that in itself is this profound political revolutionary kind of embodied way of being. Now, the result of all of this, I guess, in some ways is kind of inevitable, which is that Jesus becomes the enemy of the powerful. You know, even very early on, there's a, there's a king called Herod who sees the problem. And this is even when Jesus is just a little baby, uh, a little child. And so Herod wipes out all of these um, babies and, and, and young children in a, in a bid to kind of eliminate the threat, you know, of this possible Messiah, this possible king who might have been born. And then when Jesus begins his ministry, his mission, his vocation, the Jewish leaders see the problem very early on. They see the disruption that's being caused. And then the Romans come to see this problem also. And, you know, if you're trying to keep the peace across a wide and sprawling empire, really what you're trying to do is not let things get out of control, not let the unrest bubble up. And so Jesus becomes a problem for everybody. He's the enemy. He's the one who needs to be dealt with. And so the result somewhat inevitably, is that he's killed. He's executed. And he's killed, you know, by the Romans as a potential troublemaking revolutionary. And he's killed by the Jewish leaders, or at least given up by the Jewish leaders, as one who would not endorse their particular way of seeing things, who wouldn't endorse their religious system, who wouldn't endorse their particular desire for power. He's killed, you know, as the sacrifice for the greater good. And... Um, and as we mentioned a couple of episodes ago, this idea of, of the scapegoat who is killed really to kind of eliminate the problem so the rest of us can get on with the way things were. And so in the story at this point, violence is won and, and death has the last word, you know. So at this point in the story, you might say, okay, Jesus, well, you might preach a good message about peace and grace and hope and blessing for the poor and the meek and the downtrodden. But ultimately, you're just as weak as anybody else in the face of the power and the violence of the empire. Resistance is futile. In the words of Cersei Lannister, here's my pop culture reference for today, uh, in the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. You know, that's, that's the kind of idea here. This is where the story kind of comes to. This kind of resistance, this kind of idealistic view that in some way self-giving love, that in some way... Um, loving your enemies, making peace, blessing for the poor, um, this idealistic view that this is any kind of kingdom is destroyed when Jesus is executed. And, um, and it's this combination. It's this combination of religious power and political power. And, you know, the Roman system has perfected the art of executing revolutionaries. Those are the kinds of people who die on the cross. When Jesus is, is is dying on the cross between two criminals, you know, when I was growing up, I kind of thought of those criminals, oh, they must have been like, uh, you know, thieves or something. Um, but actually, when you look at the original language of the text, these are revolutionaries. These are people who were also seeking to revolt against the Roman Empire. But even in this moment here, when Jesus is being 
crucified, this horrendous, devastating execution. He refuses to capitulate to the system. He refuses to capitulate to this way of being. You know, in the last episode, we looked at these words on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, but one of the other sayings that, that emerge on the, on the cross here in the Gospels is this record of him saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And so even at this point in his experience, he refuses to bend in or to, or to allow himself to bend into hatred, to bend into violence, to bend in a desire for revenge. Uh, even here, his claim to love his enemies uh, is embodied to the last moment. And so at the center of Christianity is this nonviolent revolutionary who ends up being executed by the state. And this revolution that he has, which is to continue to love even as they carry out their violent ends against them. Now, of course, there's an interesting development in the story and the way it's told in the Gospels here, because the story doesn't stop. And there's this symbol of life and of new life found in the Gospel stories that says the violence is not the final word. Word, uh, That death does not win in the end. That empires might seem like the most powerful thing there is, but even they can't beat resurrection. Now, I don't know what you... I don't know what you think of the idea of Jesus' resurrection. You might be someone who's grown up staunchly within the church and you're like, well, that's a given. Yeah, awesome. Or you might be someone who's not. And you might think, can you really believe that? Can you? I don't know where you're at. It's a certainly, it's a curious idea, isn't it? Uh, um, you know, it's this thing that sits right at the heart of the Christian faith and the Christian story. Uh, one of the main claims of the church for the last 2,000 years, you know, the Easter... Um, remembrance story of the of the death and the rising but it does remain an oddly mysterious kind of happening you know the new testament texts tell us this very odd kind of bunch of stories about jesus resurrection and uh, these are stories in which it's a little bit hard to figure out exactly what's going on you know because jesus is sort of appearing to people but they recognize him and then they don't recognize him and then he's he's in the room and he's not in the room it's a little bit mysterious it's a little bit mystical. And so scholars debate around and around about whether the resurrection was literal and bodily um, or whether it was some kind of mystical new life that emerges in the followers of Jesus after his death or others who might say, well, actually, it's just a story the disciples made up afterwards to try and sort of rescue their revolution. And so you can find books espousing all of those particular points of view. And I guess the problem is, you know, we, we can amass arguments for and against, but we can't really know for sure, Right. I mean, we can't prove it. It's not about proof in the traditional sense, but I think what I have to come, what I have come to find as helpful, if I can offer this, is to recognise that beyond the conversation about was it a literal, physical versus some kind of mystical, experiential resurrection, beyond that kind of to and fro, the resurrection of Jesus functions regardless as this potent symbol among followers of Jesus in the first century that the violence of the world is ultimately no match for peace, for grace, for forgiveness, for reconciliation. No match, we might say, uh, in, a, in a divine sense, for the love of God. And they were so committed to this idea that they were willing to commit to a way of being in the world that refused to take up power over others and also that refused to be complicit in the power that was used 
over others. You know, they would these early followers of Jesus after Jesus had done his thing uh, would often find themselves in trouble with the empire. And here again, we see the political implications of early Christianity, where you have Jesus as Lord and Savior, and yet you have Caesar as Lord and Savior. And the writer of the book of the Reve- of, of Revelation. Now, if you've read Revelation, it's a very odd book at the end of the Bible. There's a lot of oddness in the Bible. It's kind of a curious, curious uh, text. Um, but you know, you have you have these these contrasting visions of the large, strong, ugly beast that emerges. It's it's a it's this it's this book in the Bible that's filled with all of this sort of fantastical imagery. And there's two images in particular that stand out for me. One is this large, strong beast with horns coming out of its head and uh, seeking power and death and devouring. And this is the symbol uh, in its original context of the Roman Empire. But then there's this lamb that has been slain. And this seems, it's almost ridiculous. This is, this is the image of, you know, the Jesus that they, that they seek to follow. And there's this contrast between big, powerful beast and a small lamb that has been slain which seems like the weakest image you could possibly come up with. And yet uh, the way in which this fantastical vision unfolds is in fact it's the lamb who is slain who ends up being much more powerful than the big beast. Um, And so instead of this simply being another kind of chapter in the Game of Thrones, so to speak, you know, instead instead of the story of Jesus being just another example of how ultimately the violent win, Uh, In this symbol of Jesus' resurrection, something new begins and we're invited into this new reality. Now, I can't tell you with 100% certainty exactly what happened in the Jesus story after he was killed. I mean, I have a PhD in theology, but I can't tell you for sure. But I still feel myself like, you know, and I'm a bit of a skeptical guy these days. I've turned into a dirty old cynic, haven't I? But... I feel like there's some kind of potency and meaning to the to this to this notion of this new life that emerges on the other side of death and and so I'm interested in this idea I'm interested in this question I'm interested in what it means to follow a man who is executed as an enemy of the state and as an enemy of religious power and I'm interested in the idea of what it means to follow someone who was killed for all of that and yet this idea of new life that emerges on the other side of it that seeks to resist and offer a more potent way of being in the world. And so I think at the least what this whole story reminds us is that the most profound way of life is the way that does not seek to take up power over others. And this impacts on us in all sorts of ways. You know, and and this sounds like a very, again, a big philosophical kind of sweeping idea about kingdoms and kings and empires and violence and all this kind of stuff. But actually it boils, it comes right into the center of our experience. And we think about the way in which we operate and function in our day-to-day lives. Because what we see on the macro scale, nation versus nation and state versus state and Brexit and Trump and all of this and and, and violence in, in, in other parts of the world... Um, all of that is just a macro version of the kind of um, the the way in which this plays out in our very personal experience all of the time. And so I'm asking the question for myself, what does it mean to actually work alongside others, for example, in my job, in, uh, in things that I do in my vocation? And instead of seeing other people as those whom I can in some way seek to have power over and exert power over, I'm asking, what does it mean to seek their best 
rather than to seek my own best and to gain power over them. What does it mean uh, to develop and foster healthy relationships that mean I'm not always trying to manipulate others for my own ends, uh, but that in some way I'm, I'm seeking to give up some of the power that I have in order to give it to those who need it. Uh, I even think this flows through to the consumables we purchase, the clothes we wear and the food we eat, the source of our possessions. Are others on the supply chain of all of this just a tool that I use to get the things I want in the way that I want them? And this impacts as well on the way I think about those who are different from me as threatening the power that I hold and that I want to hold. And when I look at the, around the world at the moment, I see people continuing to fight for power and you see people who are afraid that they're losing some kind of power. Everywhere you look, this kind of conflict is emerging. It's not new. It's always been with us. Uh, people desiring power and afraid that they might lose it. And, you know, I, th- I look at what's happening in, in parts of the world, even within the, the church at the moment, within the Christian church, people who have been swayed by this idea that what they need is power over others and so they'll look to anybody who will reinforce that sense of power and influence and put them back on top. And this, I think, is a deep, deep problem. And I think within the Christian tradition, the Jesus story is in fact the biggest critique of this kind of power over, uh, this power over others. Real power in the Jesus story, the most um, potent power if you like, is entirely upside down. It's shown to be found in self-giving love. And so when we pursue a life that is shaped by love of others, even love of those who are different and even further love of those who might be seen as our enemy, uh, instead of seeking power over them, then you know, when we pursue this kind of life, then this is what gets closest to fundamental reality itself. This is what gets us close to what we might call living in tune with the divine. This is what gets closest, I think, to finding God present among us. So that's what I want to say about that. And this is the end of our series of episodes on the meaning of the death of Jesus. Now, I really hope you found something helpful in it. It's certainly not all there is to say. There's always more to say. And I'm not sure I've said it all perfectly either. In fact, I'm sure I haven't. Uh, But I hope that something has been offered in the conversation that you might find interesting, compelling. Whether you're a Christian person or not religious at all, uh, that there might be something interesting in the story that is being offered to you. So, Uh, Wherever you find yourselves in that, uh, thanks for tuning in. I'll be back with a new conversation in the next episode of In The Shift.